Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our final COVID chat. Here we talk about the tangential and contiguous issues surrounding the SARS COVID 2, otherwise known as the COVID 19 virus. This is the only place where you can have an unfiltered and uncensored conversation about the impacts of the pandemic. I'm your host, Mario Christie. And I'm your host, Eleanor Terrellong. We are now living in Corona time. The only way our nation can ensure survival is for us to get with the program. COVID-19 isn't going anywhere. It will be a defining factor in our lives and livelihoods for the foreseeable future. Though a critical public health concern, COVID-19 is not just a public health issue. It is a social, economic, and environmental issue. COVID Chat is a program that will delve into all these challenges and impacts caused by the COVID-19 pandemic as well as our national response. How will we address our national and global sustainability needs during this time is the question we must ask ourselves. This initiative has been powered by the Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council. We're a youth affiliate of the Jamaica Climate Change Advisory Board. And we've been doing this in partnership with Environmental Solutions Limited, the Caribbean's leading environmental consultancy firm. We want to welcome everyone to this discussion and thank you for joining. And a special thanks for those who have, who have been with us from the start. Please share with us on social media using the hashtags, hashtag COVID chat, hashtag Corona time, and hashtag build back stronger. And don't forget to follow at our footprint JA, sorry, on Twitter and Instagram, and at ESL Caribbean on Twitter, and at Envirosol, that's E-N-V-I-R-S-O-L on Instagram. So this week, for our focus will be on COVID-19 and Jamaica's future impacts, solutions, and future prospects. Over the past few months, we've been looking at how COVID-19 affects various sectors. And for our final session today, we're going to be reviewing some of the most salient points and suggestions that have come up, tie them together, and sort of wrap them up. What we really want to do as the JCCYC is to kind of figure out how we can craft our advocacy to address some of the issues highlighted and how we can implement some of these solutions. So we don't want this initiative to just end with us just having all of these discussions and nothing coming out of it. Our goal is to create a strategic plan about how we as young people can lobby our policymakers and private sector partners to create the radical change that we need to move Jamaica forward in a post-COVID world. Today, we have two extra special guests with us. We have Ms. Una May Gordon, the Director of the Climate Change Division, and Mr. Javion Nelson, Executive Director of Equality JA. Thank you both for joining us this morning. I'm going to ask you to just quickly share a little bit about what you do in your role and um, some of the, the initiatives and responsibilities that you have. And I'm going to start with Ms. Gordon. Thank you. Thank you, Eleanor and team. And let me thank the, our favorite youth group for climate change <laughs> and the partners. For, for really what I consider this tremendous effort. As Eleanor said, I am the principal director of the climate change division which is a division within the Ministry of Economic Growth and Job Creation, um, and therefore a unit within that ministry. Our role as a, as a climate change division 
is to facilitate the climate action in Jamaica to, to coordinate the actions that take place, um, to integrate climate change into policies and programs, and to integrate the stakeholders' knowledge and belief around climate action in Jamaica. Um, a critical part of our role is the increasing access to climate finance and we stand as the, the focal point for the convention, for the Green Climate Fund, a number of focal points for almost everything, climate change, NDCP and so. So I'll go into that a little bit more, but I want to really, really at the onset congratulate you on, the, on this COVID chat series, which I think has, has done tremendous, has been a tremendous effort to keep the dialogue along. Thanks. Thank you. I'm Javion. Hi everyone, morning. Um, thanks for having me. Um, so yes, I'm the Executive Director at Equals JA. We are a human rights and social justice organization. Um, and I tend to talk a lot about social issues and um, political issues. At Equals JA, one of our main focus really is on ensuring the livelihood, health and well-being of LGBT people. Um, is secured and protected in Jamaican society. And so to do that, we have a wide range of programs that looks at um, targeting policy and decision makers so that they can take action around human rights and social justice. Also um, building the capacity of duty bearers such as healthcare workers or police officers to um, provide non-discriminatory service to LGBT people. Okay, thank you both for sharing. Um that information with us. Um, you know me, your work in climate change to facilitate the integration of climate change in various national programs is, um, I don't think I can, we can underscore that enough, um, especially from the JCCYC because you supported us so much in all our programs. So thank you for that. Thank you for all the work that you are doing. And Javian also, thank you for your work um, with petitioning our policymakers. So, to serve the LGBT community and for all your, your work in other social justice spaces. And it's really good to have you both in this conversation with us today. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. So our purpose. <laughs> Remember, this is an interactive conversation. So we encourage you all to join in with comments and ask questions either by typing directly into the chat box or use the raise hand feature in Zoom and we'll acknowledge and have you speak. Remember though to keep your questions and comments short and spicy so we can hear from everyone. And I'm gonna also ask um, those of us in the chat to either keep your microphones muted or um, to keep your phones on silent just in case you know, we don't want to disturb the conversation. All right, thank you, Mario. So now that we're done with the introductions, let's get right into the conversation. So during our previous COVID chat sessions, we had a number of solutions and strategies that were suggested. And I'm just going to quickly highlight some of them now so we can keep them in mind for the rest of the discussion. We spoke about institutionalizing environmental protection and climate change education, revisiting the tourism model to reduce reliance on international tourism, um, and we saw how COVID-19 really affected our tourism sector. And some of the suggestions for this were to focus more on domestic and intra-regional tourism, exploring things like ecotourism, et cetera. 
We also spoke about institutionalizing education on sustainable agriculture and fishing, crafting more inclusive financing for farmers, and improving the distribution and access mechanisms of all to affordable and healthy food. And I just want to underscore this because food security is a big issue that we focused on because it is touched, um, co both COVID-19 and climate change really affect our food and water security. And that is a direct um, problem that we need to address. So my first question, and this is going out to both of our panelists, how do we create a strategic plan to implement some or all of these solutions as part of a long-term sustainability initiative? What advice would you give us um, as we go forward creating this strategic plan? Um, I'll start with you, Nami, and then go to Javion. All right, thank you. Thank you, Elena. Um, questions, strategic plan. So let me, let me start at the onset so that we can contextualize where we are. Because as you know, Jamaica's COVID response, and I'm talking now in the big picture in terms of the government of Jamaica, the COVID response was anchored in the Disaster Risk Management Act of 2015. And that's, that's no secret. And this enabled the government to declare the, the disaster area um, of the island, which, which I think was a very strategic move. Um, in climate change, as you know, we are used to disasters. That is what to characterize a lot of our, our action. And so in the relief and what I call the relief and response phase of the crisis, the link between climate change and the pandemic was really not clearly articulated at that, at that macro level. However, we in the climate change division saw that as an opportunity, two intersecting crises. One that we have been saying we are in a climate crisis, we are in a climate emergency and the pandemic. And this is what we thought would, we would use to advance the work and place climate change resilience at the center of the recovery efforts. I want to place that in context. We, in terms of strategy, where are our work grounded in climate change? We are a party to the, to the UNFCCC convention, and I hope everybody knows what the UNFCCC and I know what the UNFCCC means, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So we are a party, and this year we are actually celebrating 25 years of being a party to the convention. And we have, as you may notice, that we have had a number of initiatives, with some of them most stymied by the pandemic. So we have the convention. We have the Paris Agreement. Now we, we launched the, the nationally determined contribution and we are developing a national adaptation plan. These are the implementing framework. So in terms of strategic framework, there are enough strategic framework to guide climate action and to guide Jamaica's work in there. Where do we find the entry point to move forward? So while we, we initiated action and we are preparing for the pandemic, it became more an urgent matter to keep the climate action alive. And you have noticed that we've been doing quite a bit of work around the pandemic. And we thought we were in a climate emergency, so we handled it in that way. So a strategic framework, the framework is already there. I think what we need to, the discussion profile therefore needs to move to where are the entry points going forward 
in this new normal, as people are going to call it. But as for us, we were always in an emergency. And in that regard, the emergency is now in crisis mode. So the climate action and the pandemic response and recovery needs to now start to not be in an indirect way, but more directly related. And as the discussion go on, I will say a little bit more of what we are doing to ensure that there is some seamless link as, as we go along. So I hope I've answered your question. Sure. Javion, any comments? Um, I, I don't think I'm sufficiently capable to answer as you know me, but I think with these issues are concerned, I think one of the primary issues that we have as a, as a country is that we typically do not put people at the center of a lot of these plans and strategies. So quite often we have a number of things that we write and I think Jamaica does fairly very well in coming up with these strategies and these plans and policies, but implementation is quite often difficult and putting people at the center. So I think if we have a much more people-centered development kind of um, focus, we would not necessarily be in as much problems sometimes as some of these things, because I think what COVID has really done is to really show how vulnerable a number of our citizens are, a significant number, not a minority, right? A number of citizens are to climate change, to economic shocks, etc. And so I think going forward, what is critical is that policy and decision makers have a clearer sense of the vulnerabilities and challenges that our people face and are much more inclined to address these issues. Because I think if we ensure that there's greater awareness, it can impact on how we actually go forward in doing what we ought to do. And I think you know me um, talked quite a lot about some of the things that we have signed on to and have agreed over the years. And so it's also a matter for policy, policy and decision makers actually um, implementing the obligations that they have um, signed on to as party, the Paris agreements, etc., all those different um, lovely things. So we do so well at the international level in understanding our obligations, but the kind of implementation that is necessary at the national level is not translating, and we have to do much more as a society to move with alacrity where these issues are concerned if we're going to actually safeguard the rights and well-being and health of our citizens, which I think COVID has really, really showed that we are not doing very well in that way. Right, definitely, Javen, and that's something that we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks is how important people are in our response. It can't be economy versus people or environment versus people. People are central to whatever response that we have. So we're going to touch back on that in a little bit. But before that, I'm going to now ask um, Yuname to expand a little bit on what, how the existing COVID-19 recovery or climate change programs are addressing some of these areas. Um, you're muted. Sorry, I okay. like to say, and I and I like to say the work that the, the work that we do with the stakeholders, and I I, I agree with 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 Javion that unless we put people at the center of the work. So what what have we been doing in the climate change division? We have segmented our stakeholders, and our programs are designed to meet the needs of our stakeholders. When we invite the youth to the table. We tell them, take up space and claim your space. And therefore, when we invite the disabled, 
We tell them take up space and claim your space, the private sector, and therefore the work that we do is not only a combined effort, but specifically targeted so that the people who are impacted can feel the benefit of our work. When we go into the international space, the youth are there, the private sector, so they themselves understand the discussion that is taking place and how it is shaped so that when we get back to Jamaica and the interventions that we craft becomes important and relevant in each and every space. So what have we done? You, you heard at the beginning the support that we have given to the Climate Change Youth Council. We have a board, a climate change advisory board, and we, at the onset, ensure that a youth voice is, is on the board. So a youth is represented on the board. In terms of the nationally determined contribution, there's a partnership that um, manages the implementation of NDC. We have ensured that the youth voice on behalf of Jamaica is represented in that partnership and in that task force that is actually helping to craft the global response and the recovery. And most of you know Dana Lynn. Um, Dana Lynn is our representative on that youth task force at the global level, which is the 198 countries around the world that are members of the partnership and the 60 international institutions. And so we fight for these things for people to be present at the table. In terms of the, 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 the disabled community, we are translating our material. And on Monday, actually, we are launching a um, booklet with the um, Jeff Smallgrant's program, translating the material so that people can understand what it is. When we develop programs, we, we allocate resources so that they can participate. Because I think one of the strong things is that we talk about it, we want you to be engaged, we want disabled, we want LGBTQ community to be engaged, but there is no allocation in budget. From a climate change vision point of view, there is, it's a deliberate effort that has to be made to involve and execute. And these are deliberate effort that we made one by one, small steps. But I think over time, we are seeing really the response. I just want to say that it needs to be deliberate. And we, we, we are ensuring that deliberate actions are taken and we stand corrected. And number of time people call us and say, hey, why, why do you do this? Tell us what would, what would you recommend? And with the public education campaign as well, that is also part of the work that is going on. All right, thank you. Um, Javion, how can we ensure that vulnerable populations are not left behind when we're implementing these solutions? So we know that we, we, as, as with everything else, climate change, COVID-19 affects the most vulnerable among us, the poor, the elderly, the disabled, women, LGBTQ community, and so on. So how do we ensure that whatever solutions we have are translating down to these people? Well, I think you and I may have started to talk about this. I think as a start, the very first thing that we have to do as a society is to acknowledge that these communities exist exactly. um, and know where you find these individuals who are parts of these communities. And importantly, also acknowledge that there are subgroups within these communities so that you can actually find the most vulnerable in the community, right? So I could be someone with disability. I'm a part of a vulnerable group, but may, I may not necessarily be 
among the most vulnerable, right? But I could be a person with disability, living in a low-income community, um, unemployed, etc., which makes me extremely vulnerable. So I think importantly, as I said, we have to acknowledge that these communities exist, know where they are, and who some of the key community contacts are, and organizations that are actually working with these communities and partner with them. I think the important thing when we're trying to reach vulnerable communities is to ensure that there is partnership among all stakeholders to actually reach the communities and to have effective services. I think the other thing is to have um, an awareness of what the challenges or needs and the vulnerabilities are. So it's okay if we acknowledge that there are LGBT people in our society and that within the COVID recovery program, we might need to provide services to LGBT people. But if we do not know what some of the challenges are, then what are we actually going to be providing for people, right? And we've seen, for example, tons of articles and stuff over the years where you may have international organizations going into a community um, where there's no water and they build a standpipe or something or a well far from the community and the average person in the community would not be able to walk to it or the young girl who typically goes to fetch the water in the morning um, for the family would not be able to then reach the school on time, etc., or the kinds of danger that that person may be um, exposed to by walking too far into some bush or something. So I think it's the same thing here. We have to know the communities, know what the vulnerabilities are, the challenges are, and to work towards addressing them. There has to be partnership to reach these communities. It has to be with civil society organizations. It has to be with the private sector and it has to be with the government. We need the public-private partnerships that actually make these things work. And importantly, recognizing that we have to challenge some of our biases, right? There's unconscious bias, there's deliberate bias, and we have to begin to work around addressing those. And one of the things that would be critical to addressing these issues is to ensure that the individuals who are to provide these services are trained in a way to one, understand what the issues are and to also provide non-discriminatory and responsive services to the communities so that people can feel okay in reaching them. And the other important thing I think, which is the last thing I'd say, is that quite often as a country, we do some things that we might train people, we go as far as the training people, but then the actual people who need these services, need the services, do not know that they actually exist, right? So another important thing is that we have to raise awareness about what exists and raise awareness about the steps that we have taken to ensure that vulnerable and marginalized communities can actually access the services. And I feel that we have done fairly well in the COVID um, period to do some of these things to show that Jamaica as a country can actually do much better in how we do things. I was, I was astonished by the level of detail in some of the things. The COVID recovery, um, the cash grants, for example, show that we can, as a society, think about so many vulnerable communities, whether they are in the informal sector or the formal sector, and recognizing the challenges. So we have to do that. And I say that because I remember a couple of years ago, we were doing something around social protection services and we had discovered that there is actual grants for people to get assistance with housing from the government on a kind of one-off basis through the Ministry of Local Government and we had put up IEC material saying did you know that the government provides XYZ and so many people were so frightened I was just astonished to know that this actually exists 
And apparently a number of people began calling the Ministry of Local Government asking about the service. And then one day somebody called from the office to say, we finally discovered why people are calling our office so much. Um, and we recognize now that it's your ad and, and stuff like that. So I think the government has to do better in actually promoting what services exist. And I think in this post-COVID or the recovery period, that is going to be important because people are still affected. We're going into another new wave seemingly and the world is going to probably shut down again and so many more people are going to be affected more than before. And so it's going to be important that people know what exists out there. All right, thank you, Javion. So we're gonna pivot a little bit. Um, something that definitely came up over and over again in our food security conversations is how important sustainable farming, sustainable agriculture, and sustainable fishing is um, to both when it comes to climate change and COVID-19. Um, and we recognize that a lot of these initiatives are done on a project level. So how can we, to Yuname, how can we institutionalize some of these solutions such as education, environmental education, education surrounding sustainable farming, education surrounding a new tourism model? How can we move it from the project level to actually be an institutional um, conversation? I think I, 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 each time we, we talk about, about institutional solutions, we, we, we have to, and I, I pivot back to what Jovan said about who is the solution for? Because unless we define that, then the institutionalization of it will, will be a misnomer. And where and how was the solution developed? Because a lot of time we develop solutions outside of the person. So it, it goes right back to, to, to the issue first. I think one of, the, one of the things that we have to do, we have to hold people accountable because from time to time, we have people just sitting around and say, just like what you said, um, government need a standpipe. And, and I, it brings me back to a long time ago when I was doing my master's in a community and we were doing work in a community in Holland. And if you, you all know, there's a community in Holland called Lekkerkirk. And the, 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 it was a community that a solution was, was created for. Lekkerkirk is a housing solution, a huge housing solution in Lekkerkirk. Thousands of houses were built. And when the people went there, the people start, the babies started to die. People started to die. And when we went in to look at what it is, the, the, the housing solution was built on a contaminated dump. So while people want houses and the solutions were built, it was built on a contaminated dump, lead and all the other things and therefore, so who is the solution for? And therefore, how we institutionalize, what are the mechanisms to ensure that the solution is sustainable? And the only thing that we, we can do as a government and as government and as stakeholder one is that the stakeholders hold the government accountable, but two, that governments themselves across government institution remove the policy conflicts. There are too many policy conflicts. So one ministry is responsible for housing. 
but one ministry is responsible for the, the solid waste. One ministry is responsible for trucking water. One ministry is responsible for developing the beach. One ministry, and therefore, and each person has a policy in its for itself that needs them to go along. And so we compete for competition. So there is competition for recognition and there is overlap and duplication. And unless we start there, then institutionalization of these things will continue to elude us. Remove the policy conflicts, let's stop the competition for recognition and let's ensure that the integration of processes what is the process to get a good solution and a sustainable solution? And if we can get there as a people, and the people have to recognize their power. I think people are giving up their power and not holding accountability. Not that accountability meter that is necessary from the people, I find is sometimes lacking. Thanks. Right. Thank you, Yunami. Um, I loved what you said about removing the policy conflicts because we notice in Jamaica a lot of times we're all operating in silos and there's no coordination between um, agencies and entities. And that's so important when we're talking about um, addressing these crises that affect so many different sectors and so many different um, areas of our society. We're going to talk now about food security. Um, what kind of mechanism should we put in place to overcome some of the challenges associated with food security, specifically accessibility, attainability, and affordability so that everyone has access to food security? And how can we, is, it, is this really realistic? Is, is it possible for us to actually get to a point where everybody has the same access to healthy and affordable food? Um, this question is going out to both panelists. So, Yuna May first, and then Javion. Let me tell you, you, you know, my, my, my spend my life in agriculture, so I will talk till next year on this subject. Our food security is tied up in our sovereignty. If we cannot feed ourselves, we are doomed. Simple. However, it really is important for us I like to say, we like foreign food. Huh? We love yeah. foreign food. Hmm? And therefore, we have been cultured to say that the, 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 the yam and the banana and the, this that come from country, if we start to move up in social standing, then that is not important anymore. The, the, the coin is flipping, and I can tell you the coin is flipping with all the, N, the NCDs that we are seeing around. But growing up, you, would, uh, you need to eat rice, and you don't eat the Guyana rice. You eat the, the other foreign rice, right? So with the PL380, some of you are too young to know about these things. We don't eat the Guyana rice. We eat because Guyana is down there, and Guyana is third world rice. We eat the rice that come, the, what is called the Carolina from, North, from Carolinas, right? But our food security is tied up in our sovereignty. And therefore, if we, I, I, I like to say, we have a church, we, we want religion. We want religion, we build monstrous churches. We want to, to build wealth, we build monstrous banks. We want to, to do 
something else we build. We want to education, we build schools. We want to sort out agriculture and provide food for people. We put it in the hands of the small farmers on the hillside. And so the coherent policy and drive to ensure that we have food and we are secure, it is accessible and that it is supported, it is financed, is in the hands of the small farmers. Right? So it is not a technical capacity issue. It is a structural issue that needs to be fixed. So we disassociate production from marketing. We don't have a production problem. We have a distribution and a marketing problem. So we have planting and stoning dog in St. Mary, and we importing planting down in, in Montego Bay for the hotel, for the hotel industry. We have a structural problem and unless we start to look at food production and food security in that way to provide access for all, accessibility for all, but also a integrated program which takes nutrition as part of the food security mandate, we will be, as, as I like to say, as the Bajan would say, we will, and the Trinidadian, we continue to spin top in mud in terms of this agriculture paradigm. I'll, I'll stop there because I could go on and on and on about a passionate subject that I, <laughs> I don't talk about anymore because it is too frustrating. Um, and we appreciate your take. Jamion, um, and I want you to, to speak specifically about the access of these vulnerable populations to affordable food. Yeah, um, I think for us, where food security is concerned, one of the things that we need is, um, I think we need better policies, right? So I think we need policies that encourage for healthier options in school. So if you look at our schools, for example, and I remember the, I was working at school about three years ago or so, and um, the company I was assisting, they wanted to provide some assistance for the, the children who are on path who are receiving food um, at the school because, you know, they get breakfast and lunch sometimes, etc. And I was stunned when the principal had provided to me a list of what the students are served on a daily basis. And I was like, but oh, this is nothing healthy, right? And this cannot be the case because here you are, we acknowledge that there are lots of children. I think at one point, at least 30% of children were going to school without breakfast, right? And if we acknowledge that breakfast is an important part of the learning process for children and that they're adversely affected in their learning process as a result of having no breakfast, then how is it that we're giving these kids all these unhealthy options of fried dumpling and all these things that's not good for them? So I think we need to start with our schools, better policies where we ensure that within our schools, our schools are being supplied by the local market, the local farm markets in their communities, right? The farmers in their parishes, are providing as much as possible. We also need policies with incentives and disincentives to encourage more local production and consumption and to um, provide disincentives for us where the importation is concerned. I know it's difficult because we live in a free, free market society and all these things that we're going to have challenges, but we have to find better ways of providing the subsidies and stuff for our farmers to actually begin to produce more. And I think that will help a lot of the local communities more. Um, if we look at the COVID-19 um, pandemic, for example, I think it's the first so many of us 
um, as a society focus on purchasing actually um, local produced stuff, you know, the ground provisions, etc. We were buying them because they were cheaper. There was an influx in the market because I was stunned when I heard that 60% of our agricultural produce went to the hotels. We do not have that many people at our hotels on any given basis. So to hear that 60% of our food production goes to the hotel is a remarkable figure. It's astonishing and it's really, really not how we should be going as a society. So here it is now, the hotels are finally closed down, unfortunately, affecting a number of people, but the market finally had the production we need. And I think the Ministry of Agriculture took some real good policy um, positions or programmatic positions. So for example, say yes, the fresh was good. So people were encouraged to buy local produce, etc. We're buying lots of pineapple and eating pineapple. I saw Mario, for example, eating a whole pineapple one evening for dinner. Um, we had lots of people going to the farmer's markets right across the place, buying these things. You had box, um, farm produce boxes being sold where you could just, um, purchase these things. So that was really, really good. Um, I think we also need to encourage more subsistence farming. Um, and that would also help to increase the number um, or the quality of food a number of us are eating. Um, where the vulnerable communities are concerned, I think it really ties back all to the policies and stuff that we have. Because if you look, if you go to the supermarket, right? Because not all of us are going to go to the market. And even if we go to the market, Local produce is often too expensive, so we ignore buying the fruits, etc. I just buy the rice and flour because that is so much cheaper. And so if you're someone who is poor, you are not going to be buying all these things. The only lucky thing is that you don't really have all the money to be buying all the KFC and Burger King and all these things that are not necessarily healthy. And so you might buy Kalalu a little bit more than some other people. And so you're getting some good iron and all these things. So I think we have to look at the kind of policies. And if we're going to beat NCTs, you know, we can do all the Jamaica moves that we want, but an important part is always going to be how do people actually access and afford these things that are much better for them? And I don't think we're doing um, very well at that. If you look, for example, at the bread basket, um, I'm 34 and from the day I was born, I've always heard the same challenges in St. Elizabeth. Water irrigation is a huge issue in St. Elizabeth. How is it that we both that boast that this is a parish where most of our food comes from, but the people are having significant challenges? Of course, there are, there are savvy farmers, so they make do with whatever they can. And you cover up your plant, you have some wood grass and whatever. I you know when not to plant, etc. Um, but we have to do more. So we have to fix the irrigation problems. We have to find a way to balance how much of our local produce is going to supply um, our hotels and how much is supplying the local market. And it can't be that more goes to the hotels where you don't have as many people, where there's so much food waste in the hotels. And then even when you have things left over, people who are vulnerable and poor aren't getting that because we have no policy to say, well, if something is going bad or something has been on the um, service table for X number of hours or minutes rather, then maybe you can provide to people who might want it. So I think we have to look at some of those countries where I think France has done some good work in that regard to 
use food waste because there's so much food waste in our country like Jamaica that could actually go to vulnerable people, children's home, etc. Um, you have places where when things are going by that supermarket, they find a way to ensure that at a certain point you take it to give to the um, poor. But we don't do that. So things are just being thrown away all over the country when there are so many people who could benefit. But, um, if I may jump back in, Eleanor. Um, Javon, there is one, and I go back to the question before about the policy conflicts, because there is actually policies in place. We need to implement them and hold the, hold the people accountable. There is a food and nutrition security policy, which was developed through extensive consultation with all stakeholder group right across the population. But one of the things we do very, very well, as you, as you say, we develop this policy because it is the flavor of the day to have, to have a policy. And then we put it down and we go back. And so it comes back to the point of the accountability. Where are these things? There are policies that in place that is available. And if we join the policy process, how can you, as you say, have a food and nutrition security policy and then you are feeding, as you say, a school feeding program where the base of it is imported flour, bulla, um, sweet juice and so. There, there are real conflicts in, in the system that needs to be removed. And unless we do this, this coping study, and I don't like to say that we have challenges. I'd like to say that, they, that we have problems. I'd like to say that the challenges, if we systematically look at them one by one and take steps to remove them, peel them back, peel back the challenges, then I think and the, the only way we will get that done is if the population start to step up and say, hey, you have a school policy that is in conflict with that other policy. What's going on? And now with social media, it is, it is the easiest thing to call out and highlight these things. And, 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 and as I like to say, social media shame these things that we see going on. But there, I, I would digress that there are a number of policies that, that we just waste resources. To, to develop and then we put them on a shelf. Um, I, I think file, um, file 13 or shelf 13 is full. <laughs> it's really, really full at this time. Anyway, I leave it there. <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, Jamion, I know that you're very vocal about social justice issues, especially on social media. Do you think that the government is really open to these sorts of radical change and sustainable solutions? And what are some of the reasons that you think they may be open if you think they're open or may not be open? Um, I, I think they're fairly very open. I think our leaders, and I think if you look at the agreements we sign at international level and even the stuff that we translate to local stuff. So even, um, you know, as you know, Misha, there's the... Um, food and nutrition security policy. So we do, we, there's a level of um, admission that these things are important. I think um, all of us want a better country. All of us recognize 
that these policies are important, that these actions are important, I think, as Una May has been stressing, is the implementation um, that is the, that's the real death knell of the challenges that we have as a society right now, you know? We're not implementing the stuff or we attempt to implement and we reach 13, 15, 16, 20 years and we're still not necessarily at the point in which we need to implement. So if you look at public sector modernization, for example, We've been doing that for so long, right? And we've been talking about the duplication, you know, May spoke about the duplication and stuff of the efforts. Um, we don't have as much synergy because the ministries, departments and agencies aren't working together as well, as well as they should. And even though we have some multi-sectoral and multi-ministerial committees and task forces, the level of coordination is still not there. So. I think in fairness to our decision makers, the senior technocrats, the um, politicians, there's a lot of admission about what is necessary. Some of the more radical things, you might have some divergence there, but I think in terms of the main things that are needed, we acknowledge and accept that this is the way to go. Because I think there's fairly um, great consensus nationally, regionally, and internationally about these things. But it's perhaps, perhaps what we need to work on now, as Una May has been stressing, is the accountability. How do we empower people at the local level? Because a lot of people are interacting with their members of parliament and stuff. But what they hold them accountable on might be some of the more immediate things that they can pinpoint to. So we have to radically change how we empower citizens to take action um, around a number of issues that we face as a society, for them to see the big picture and to see the immediate picture that they have. Um, so, you know, they know that they need food and they need road and stuff, but also they need to see the bigger picture that we can't have so many agencies working on road. We don't need farm road, we don't need local government road, we don't need NWA road, right? So we need to create those synergies, we need to empower people, we need to work more with our policymakers to get them to actually ensure that things are implemented. Because what we need now is the real implementation of the things to make it better. And we've seen lots of good examples. You know, we see where, for example, to say yes to fresh work. We see, yeah, um, well, where by eat what you grow, grow what you eat works. But we're not necessarily promoting these things um, as much as we should. All right, thank you. You know me, I know you work directly in the government. So any thoughts on how open they are to these radical solutions and how we can sort of push them to get there? Well, if you're asking me the radical to, 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 to answer that, you know. But I, I am sure that, that government is, is amenable and very, very open. But it, it needs to be coordinated, coordinated action. And I, and I like to say when I did, and I'm not dating myself, Javon, but when I did my master's 20 odd years ago in environmental sciences, people asked me, what are you going to do with a degree like that? Hmm? However, that was the time when the environmental movement was strong and there was confrontation and there was everything. I don't, I think we have passed there where, where the society has emerged into this consensus building. And so I, I go back to my original point about being at the table, being present at the table. Take up your space at the table and let your presence be heard. 
confrontation these days, I don't think it, 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 it continues to work. As John Lewis said the other day, we make good trouble. And sometimes it only, that's the only way. But I think sometimes we address the problem or the challenge wrong and therefore we don't get the desired result. It has to be strategic. We have to plan. We have to know what we want. What is the outcome? My brain is only wired to outcome. And therefore, what is the outcome that I would want from this intervention that I am proposing here? And then you work towards it. So, and therefore, as technicians in the government, who really is responsible for the implementation of all the policy, all the things that are, that are, are, are crafted. I remember when the prime minister stood up a couple of days ago when we were um, paneling Jamaica House and he said, oh yeah, we, we don't have ambition. We need to move from 30% to 50% renewable energy. And I'm like, huh, huh? Well, how are we going to do that? However, however, we had to step back because that was, that went across the world. So as a technician, we had to go back and look is this possible? Analyze the situation. What did he mean by that? What and translate that into implementable action to see because the world is now saying, oh, Jamaica is going to move from 30% to 50%. We were already, people were saying it cannot happen, but we were already at 18% at that time. So sometimes just to step back and look and as technicians in the government, it is a big part of our responsibility to translate some of these policy actions or these policy statements into real implementing action with, with the people that it impacts. Because if we are going to translate something that impacts the disabled community, the youth, the LGBT community, the private sector in particular, and they are not involved in that solution that you are even trying to craft and running with it, as you say, makes no sense either. So it is joined up action. I would, I would I'm one to hasten to say that there are significant capacity gaps within the government that sometimes these things don't happen fast enough. And therefore it, it behoves that if civil society and we've been doing quite a bit of work with the civil society organizations as you know we had one of the most successful engagement with the, the ngo movement in jamaica in in recent times where we looked and we say hey what are some of your challenges and how can we help you to help us so we have to go to the community i like to say we have to take deliberate action on the part of government to translate the policy prescription into implementable action and without that we we are going to be talking another when another pandemic strike god forbid <laughs> all right thank you um i think that as young people um we, we have a lot of energy but we're not sure how we can champion our cause to make sure that we're actually heard so we don't know if 
we need to go block road or if we need to prepare a document or how is it that we, we as young people can actually craft our advocacy in a way to ensure that um, it's not just seen as tokenistic as okay the young people have done this but let us now move on with, with whatever else the solution is. So do you have any advice and this is for both panelists, do you have any advice how we specifically as a council, um, for example if we develop a strategic plan, how is it that we can actually be heard and taken seriously by our policymakers? Um, Javion, you want to start? Yeah, um, I can start. So I think one important thing really is to be clear what actions you're going to take. And I think oftentimes as young people, um, I almost say we, but I forget I'm old now. Oh man, we used to still understand. <laughs> Oftentimes, we're not very clear and focused on what we want to do. And sometimes we try to, um, we have very idealistic ideas about what can actually happen. And so we try to bite off too much one time, right? So we have to, I think there's a lot, 80, 20 rule or something like that, that they call it, that we have to focus on what is possible, right? So create a roadmap. These are the things that we want. This is the big vision. But here are the immediate steps that's going to help us to get there. And I think we have to be realistic about how much we can contribute to making the society better. All of us want a utopia, but we should also recognize that it's not really possible, right? So one of the first things we have to do is to say, what contribution? Be very clear with ourselves. What can, contribution can I make as an individual to making the society better? And then what contributions can we make as a collective to make the society better. Map out those things and how you're going to do it. Hold yourself accountable because I think oftentimes we talk about accountability for leaders, but we also don't recognize that we are also accountable. We should also be accountable, right? So the ministry, you know, you know, may might invite us to sit at the table, but every time we go to the meeting, we don't read the papers, you know, they check the email, but we just sit down there and we walk the bench and we come back and we say, oh, well, check the box. We got a meeting, but what was actually discussed, what contribution we made to make this thing better, we don't know. And then the policy ready to pass um, by cabinet, I will start to create a lot of noise and say, oh, but this missing, that missing, but the policy was there on the table all this time when we should have contributed to it, right? The other thing I think we have to, rec have to recognize is we also have to learn the processes. So we talk a lot about advocacy, but we don't understand the policymaking process. We don't understand the lawmaking process, right? So we have to reach a white paper in parliament before we want to contribute, but the green paper was there all this time. The consultations were there, and we didn't pay attention to it, right? We didn't contribute to the process. Joint Select Committee was asking for things, and they extended the deadline, and they extended the deadline, and ask you say if i just write a letter write a letter and we'll con consider it as a submission to the joint select committee it doesn't have to be a 50-page document right so these are things that are important and in fact one huge thing that i find which bothers me is that a lot of young people divorce themselves from the political process and we feel like the politics don't make sense and oh ew we don't want to have nothing to do with it but you can't want change if you divorce yourself completely from the process. It doesn't mean that you have to get involved in politics, but you have to understand that these are the people who are going to end up sitting in Gordon House. They're the ones who are going to make decisions. They're the ones who are going to go to the ministry and are responsible for policies, right? And we oftentimes as well don't try to build relationships. So we think that, you know, 
we will make good trouble, or we can make good trouble because sometimes it is necessary, as you know, may say, right? Because John Lewis said, right? Which is true. But at the end of the day, we still also need to build the relationships with the people who are power brokers, right? Who are power holders as well, so that we can actually, when we make the trouble, we're actually reaching somewhere. It kind of really make no sense to get up and make noise every day, and it's having no fruit, right? As you know, may said, the outcome is important. So we might have the output, yes, we didn't make nice this time because government got dump more, um, more garbage down at Riverton City and don't really take action to improve um, the site there. And we make nice about it. But what is the outcome, right? So we check our box, but at the end of the day, the people that we're making the noise for, are they better off from our noise making? So we have to be very, very clear about that as well. And I think... The other thing too is just to recognize that quite often we complain about these things in government, but we also do the same thing. So we also have, as young people, as civil society, as NGOs, as youth groups, have to build relationships among ourselves and work together because the working together is not only an obligation for government, it's also an obligation for us as the people who are trying to hold government accountable to make the change happen in society. And the last, last thing, which is something I've been encouraging, so somebody needs to create a kind of um, technological program. You, you people young and savvy, maybe um, because I think where policymaking is concerned, every citizen is not going to necessarily sit down and write a submission to parliament, but I feel that there's a wealth of contribution to these policies and stuff online and in, tra and in traditional media. And if only we had something to sort of curate those contributions and then somebody sits down and say, this person did call and talk about XYZ on this program. And these were some of the things that we saw on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram. And then put that together in a kind of submission. I think we would see so much more because there's a wealth of contribution that people are making about the challenges that we face as a society. But somebody needs to find a way to curate it and then use it as submission to these important policies. Thank you, Javian. You know me, any advice for us as young people? Maybe I could, I could take up right where Javian let off. Because I think sometimes, so let me, let me bash the young people first and then let me give the encouragement. Because I think a lot of times we make perfection the enemy of the good. So, so you want it to be perfect and therefore you, you continue. And, 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 and also that sometimes you want to do too much. You have to define the space that you are going to contribute in. And therefore, in that way, you will be able to strategically intervene and make the contribution. Young people have to understand the processes of government. I myself, it's my first time working in government. It gave me a bit a problem when I just entered the ministry. But, but if I am going to lead the process, I have to understand it. And I think one of the things that we, we should try to do is really understand the process. As you say, what is the policymaking process? The difference between a policy and just a statement, what is it? Because unless we understand these things, we can't contribute definitively to it. So I would encourage you to, as a council and as young people, to, to these three things. Define what you want to do. 
clearly defined. We are going to only intervene in this space at this time, and it has to be really time-bound. In these five years, this is our mission and our vision. And I like to say a vision is like when you sit down and the clouds and the cloud is floating, but the mission is crisp and concrete. But with that, it, you have to, to ensure and I go back to the accountability portal that you have to be accountable yourself. We say we're gonna do this, but also I talk about holding government accountability. It goes along that continuum. I'd like to talk about the taking up the space. You as young people should know that you have a space and a voice. Not only take up the space, but write. Write about it, document, document your efforts so that nobody, when I was in agriculture, I used to hear people say, oh, young people not interested in agriculture. And I must be the only young person that never believed that until I get old now and still don't no, believe no. I listen to the COVID chat. Young people, I used to hear young people not interested in agriculture. When I formed the Caribbean, um, Youth Council on Agriculture, the Caribbean Forum for Youth in Agriculture. I've never seen so much engaged young people in agriculture and I'm considering. But how they say young people not interested in agriculture. So you have to take, you have to document your effort as well. And as I said before, if you don't find a seat at the table, ask for your seat. You have to be deliberate. Ask for your seat take it and use it and without that you will continue to be saying what is it that we need to do ask for your seat don't be forceful ask for your seat take your seat and use the seat and with that define very clearly how that seat is going to serve your cohort and your population thanks um, Eleanor, sorry, if I can just add something because I think um, I have three other things because I, I've been doing some trainings with young people um, in a number of different spaces around governance and human rights and social justice um, and accountability and transparency. And one of the things that strike me um, is that a lot of young people, because when Yuna May talked about um, just taking action and stuff, I recognize, I forgot that one of the big thing I noticed is that a lot of young people are not confident, right? Everybody thinks they can't do it. And you think about the perfection and you look at Christy and you say, well, I, I can't speak about environment like Christy. I don't know about human rights like Glenn Roy or Javion. And I don't know about social justice like Eleanor and stuff. And you just laden yourself with all of those doubts about yourself, right? And I find that's something that young people really have to get over. You have to work on your fears and that sense of inferiority that you are not good enough because if especially if it's something that affects you directly you are more an expert on that matter than a PhD holder right and so we have to become a little bit more confident um, in our ability, we have to trust ourselves and work with people who can mentor and support us um, around some of those things. But we have to work on the confidence of young people to actually help them to take action. Um, the other thing I, I think is important is that oftentimes um, as young people, we misunderstand the difference between advocacy and activism.
The two are complementary, but the two are not the same, right? And so oftentimes we see on TV the activism in America, and so we think that all you need to do is to go to the road and make noise and block fence and scream at our policymakers, but then we don't see the people who are walking the halls of Capitol Hill and um, their respective state legislative buildings, right? So it's important that we understand that the advocacies are more behind the scenes process that requires a little bit more thought and depth. And then the activism is what we use to galvanize greater support and bolster what we're doing in terms of advocacy. And those two things are very, very important. And the sets of people who do both are oftentimes not the same. So the activists are not necessarily the same people who are the advocates. The advocates are quite often the people we don't see, right? In America, most of them are called lobbyists and the up and downs. So I think we have to recognize that. And the advocates have to be the ones who understand these processes that you know talked about. And then the last thing I think is that we have to understand as young people, that our passion is not good enough. It sometimes gets us in the room, we're passionate about environment, we're passionate about human rights, we're passionate about social justice, economic justice, this and that, but our passion is not enough because you need substance in your representation for your representation to be effective and for it to make sense that you are constantly invited to the room. So your passion may get you to the room with you and me, but beyond that, what are you going to do to maintain your presence there, to make an impact and to leave an indelible mark, right? So when you age out as a young person, when you reach 36, since you say I'm still young, what contribution would you have made in that space that caused you to have made an impact for the people? Those three things I think are very, very important. And then lastly, um, if you want, there's a good resource um, by Jamaica Youth Advocacy Network that was developed several years ago under the USAID um, MOH project um, called, um, oh Jesus, I forgot what it's called now. But the, it's a JN Advocacy Toolkit, which talks about the Beatitudes of Advocacy, etc., and the processes that you go into developing your plans and creating your action plan and holding yourself accountable. That I think is very good for anybody who wants to get into advocacy. Jovan, I would, I would add to that is that we have to realize that everybody have a different skill set. So there are people who don't want to go before anybody to talk, but they are so good at organizing behind the scenes that you would not, you, you could not do it without them. And therefore, when you have this group of young people or this group of women or this group of disabled people or this group of people, any cohort of people, that a mapping of the skill sets that you have around you to maximize each and every one becomes important. And that's a confidence building effort. I, 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 I like to take myself as one who have moved tremendously from total activism of going and sitting out at the prime minister's office. You all don't know that side of Yuname Garden, but I can tell you it was there some, somewhere in the past. Moving out of that, where your teeth were from school because your mother sent you to school and you're up at the prime minister's office camping out in terms of activism, to one of real advocate to ensure that space is created for the different people and, and that is a necessary output of, of what you do. And therefore, and your name don't need to call because a lot of time 
people feel that if, oh, I'm doing so much and them don't call me name, I'm not in it anymore. I can tell you that if you look behind the scenes and the amount of things that is attached to the name, you know me, Gordon, you would think it's 10 different persons. I don't need anybody to call the name. But we just need to ensure that people who have a contribution to make can be given that space to make that contribution in the space that we create for them. So I leave it there. All right, thank you. Um, so I have one final question before we wrap up and I think that this is a great place for us to sort of tie everything together. So uh, in my opinion, I've been saying that um, COVID-19 has given us this window of opportunity. So this very small period of time for us to really um, change, if we, we're changing the status quo or whatever it is. Um, do you agree that COVID-19 has provided these sorts of opportunities and is it too late for us to take advantage of it because I mean we've moved from the initial pandemic when everything was locked down and we're now moving forward to what we will what life will look like between now and whenever we get a COVID-19 vaccine but how do we prevent it everything just going back to business as usual once the COVID vaccine COVID-19 vaccine comes into play and this is for of course both of our panelists uh let me, let me start because business as usual is not an option anymore. That's gone. In, in climate change, as you know, we have the BAU situation. It's part of our, our, our narrative for climate change and it will remain there. But in this going forward, it is not even an option anymore. We will not be going back. We can't go back. There is no space for going back. So we have an opportunity now and it is a moment now we have not lost any opportunity because we are still in that rebuilding phase in that looking phase in that exploratory phase what else is going to come with this pandemic everybody's talking about the green recovery for us at climate change so let me go back into my own space now in the climate change space we have launched our nationally determined contribution and I talk about that and it's online for everybody. It's on the Climate Change Secretariat website in the NDC registry. Familiarize yourself with it. What did Jamaica, and we call it NDC's ambition of Jamaica for climate change. What does that look like for us? And what is in it? What have we promised the international community as our contribution? We are following right upon that. We launch at the 30th of June and we, we right ahead, not the third national communication, the nationally determined contribution and it's in the nationally determined contribution registry on the, on the website. So you should get a very small document. And then we write along the way to say, okay, this is what we promise, what else? We are saying that we have to chart a pathway to achieve this. And so we're looking at a 2050 pathway. Most people are looking at 2030, but we have Vision 2030 and the MTF. We are saying we are charting a 2050 pathway. So sooner or later, all of you will start with the consultation of what this 2050 pathway will look like in our post-COVID scenario as, a, as, as climate change. And we have started that work. We launched a program on Tuesday this week. 
to develop the 2050 pathway and a low carbon development strategy. Are we going to decarbonize? What is it? What, what does it look like? We are developing the National Adaptation Plan because the NDC is set in a mitigation energy framework with forestry and so but the National Adaptation Plan is important at the community level. What is it that it means for us at the sectorial level, the agriculture, the forestry, the fisheries, the tourism, what kind of adaptation plan it needs to go in? And we have started that work in earnest. All of that is taking place. And so we are developing this great platform to take us into the future. And it is coming at this time, which we think is a great moment to define clearly what we want going forward. Renewable energy is, is, is at the center of everything that we talk about now. And yesterday morning, for, for some of you, the blue economy, we, I like to say in that conversation yesterday morning, I said, we are Caribbean countries. We are island and ocean state that is joined by the Caribbean Sea and we behave like we're separated by the Caribbean Sea but we are actually joined by the Caribbean Sea. What are we going to do with the economic zone that we have going forward? Those are some of the things. And I like to end by saying that financing, all the financing, we cannot as a country, as a small island say, the loans, the grants, everything that we go to the international community for now is tied up in the post-COVID recovery. And therefore, if we are not speaking what everybody else is speaking about, green recovery, the ocean recovery, ocean health, we are going to be left behind. But I think Jamaica is well-placed. Our citizens are engaged and we are well-placed to take the mantle forward. Um, and before I go to Javen, I just want to say I actually did look at the um, NDC updates. It's very ambitious, um, very good work from the Climate Change Division. It's really nice to see. Um, so Javian, Javian, how do we prevent going back to business as usual after COVID-19? Um, yes, I think, you know, we always say there's an opportunity in crisis. And I think in the COVID, in the peak of the COVID um, pandemic here, and we seemingly going back into another one. There are lots of lessons that I think we learned as a society about how to take better care of our country, of our citizens, and the kind of action and how we can actually um, move with alacrity to get things done. I mean, we went from having, what, a, couple, a handful of ventilators, you now we have, um, I think, perhaps the most in our history um, in no time. So I think that's important. A apply those lessons that we have learned in the pandemic um, about taking care of our citizens, about taking care of the vulnerable. Um, you know, it's the first I heard so much discussion, for example, about the, the elderly people in our country um, and stuff like that. And you had, um, you know, lots of actions around people who are homeless and stuff. So those lessons we learned, apply them and let's move forward in the same kind of way. Um, I think the other thing that we have to do is to um, sorry, recognize that what has happened um, has forced us to take certain actions and that as Yuna may say, going back is now not an option. We have to press gas and press gas and press gas and move forward in the same kind of way um, that we have been and improving on what we have been doing. Because if I, th I think if we 
continue to work in this kind of way where we have so much joined up government approach to certain things now, then our society will be better off, that more people will be taken care of, etc., um, than we have been doing. Um, I think going forward as well, for the recovery efforts, we have to kind of dissect Jamaica. So going back to the, that whole issue about the vulnerable communities, find out who they are, where they are, what their needs are, what their challenges are, and work from that. And I think we've been doing that in a fairly okay way in the COVID pandemic and going forward for climate change for everything, we have to do the same kind of thing and do it even better. Scale up those efforts so that we can um, get to where we need to go and to reach to Vision 2030. Um, they support systems for monitoring and evaluating and holding our leaders accountable and holding each other accountable is also going to be important. I don't see the dashboard for Vision 2030 online again. And we're failing in certain parts. We've done so well in the economic um, aspect, but other areas are lagging and especially goal to for example, um, that area which deals with a lot of the vulnerabilities that systems face is way behind on the governance mechanisms and stuff. So we have to do better in that regard. Um, and then I think the last two things I'll say is um, through Jamaica Moves, we have um, seen or the program has shown us how we can actually empower people to take action and take charge of their future. Right, and so I think for climate change, which is something that so many of us don't care about, and we're born with garbage, and we do this and that anyway, and we're not, we're, you know, all these things, I would still think it's okay to get the styrofoam and stuff. I would still want the plastic straw because we can't buy the paper straw. I think Jamaica Moves has shown how we can actually engage citizens, empower them, and democratize things so that all the decisions that we need to personal risk our own personal responsibility is taken at a very, very personal level. We can't take charge of our future as a country, but we have to have the programs to support us to do it. And I think lesson learned from Jamaica Move to do that. And I'd love to see a similar kind of program for climate change. And then finally, I think what is even more important is um, political will and political leadership. And especially for something like climate change, we've seen where the Prime Minister has positioned himself internationally. And I hope that whoever is the Prime Minister or if he continues to be Prime Minister, we get even more leadership and not just at the international level, but at the local level. Because quite often, what is missing for the kind of actions that we need as a society, especially on some of these things that we think are softer issues, which have far-reaching impact on our society, is a lack of will and political leadership. Let me, let me add, Eleanor, let me add that the, I, I, there was, there was a, um, a question in the chat about the Vision 2030, um, and that did the last one was done. So let me just correct that. The Vision 2030 is a, the 2009 document that goes up to 2030, and it is implemented by the medium-term framework, which are four-year frameworks. So therefore, the last one, the last framework was developed in 2018, and we go to 2022. And so 2021, the new framework will start to develop, just, so just, just for, for clarity, so that people understand we talk about the processes, some of these that, that needs to be understood. So I would want, to, want to, to correct that. But also that at the level of the 
the, the, the government and the climate agenda. The agenda is a three-tier agenda. The, it is driven at the international level by the Paris Agreement, the, 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 the UNFCCC Convention and so on. And then we have the national agenda. And the national agenda also has to be in sync with the, with the international agenda. So there can be no conflict. And I think sometimes, I, I remember when I joined the government in, in late 2016, and when I, I was not here when the, in the elections, I'm happy I'm here for this election, but I was not here for the elections in 2016. But when I came home and applied for this job and actually got it, people were surprised because nobody knew who Unami Gordon was. <laughs> but I saw the job online when I was overseas, I applied and I came home. And when I came home, one of the first things I hear people saying, oh, because before there was a Ministry of Climate Change. What, I can't remember what, the, some whatever, with climate change in the name of it. And then the, the, the name of the ministry changed to the Ministry of Economic Growth and Job Creation. And really, it was because of the name of the ministry why I applied for the job. Because I'm saying now people will start to see climate change as an economic issue. And, and then I came home and I was blindsided because people were saying that the government is not interested in climate change. So you find yourself in a dilemma because you leave your work abroad and come home to take over a job with government and then let the government not interested but it was what the government was doing that brought you home so you that kind of dilemma as professionals we have to also guard against because then to define really what it is that we are doing at the national level filter out the noise i will tell the young people filter out the noise because at the climate change division that is what we have to do filter out the noise and focus on the prize always what is it that we have to do and take your cue from the group the stakeholder group that you you want to do i'm Ellen, i'm still very peeved that we never get to do our red hot march but oh. i'm sure that we will sometime in the future get to do that because that would have cemented the work that we were doing with the young people to bring it home. But really and truly focus on the prize, cement out. And since you are closing, let me just offer some closing remarks because I have to run to say one that the future must be characterized by what the young people in the system wants innovation what they bring to the table the innovation the technology that is what the future going forward must characterize it and the engagement the full and transparent engagement of the youth without that i will be dead and gone i'm old not like you javon and i'll be gone but it has to be your charge and you have to have to take data don't forget the issue of data. The future will be built on data, data, and data. And my final word, data is our new oil. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. All right. So thank you again, um, Unami and Javian. Um, we usually like to give a little summary of the conversation and this week is my week and I feel like a student um, trying to fil filter through all of this information. 
but it was a good chat. Um, so my, my point that I want to just bring back as we close is that we can't go back to business as usual. This is not an option. Um, there's an opportunity um, that we are met with in this crisis. And as Javian pointed out, um, Jamaica has done well in responding. And what we need to do now going forward is to apply these lessons learned and upscale the, um, the kind of solutions that we would have implemented to create that, um, that society that we want to live in. Accountability is going to be important going forward. As young people, um, we have to hold our policymakers accountable and recognize also that we have a duty um, to give our, our inputs to policies and decisions that are being um, developed and being made. And we have to be a part of the political process. I like that Javian pointed out that we cannot um, unmarry ourselves completely from the process, even though we don't like the politics. Um, even if we don't like the politics, rather, we can't be completely removed from the process as young people if we want to see certain kinds of change in our country. Um, we definitely need to be translating policy into implementable action that is coordinated and inclusive. Thank you for that, um, Uname. And that is what we'll be trying to do as the, the council going forward after we, we wrap up these chats. And these actions are going to take political will and leadership. I, I like the gems that are being dropped um, all throughout these chats. And finally, I want to close with placing people at the core, the center of the responses. That is going to be critical moving forward. We need to be intentional about our inclusion when crafting solutions, and we have to actively empower our people to take charge and make the issues personal for them so they can make the, the decisions that we want them to make to advance our society and our agenda. Thank you, Mario. Um, so this is the end of our series. I can't believe that we, we have come to the end. I think every week I've left feeling more inspired than I started the morning. Thank you so much to our guests for joining us. Thank you so much to our audience for joining us. There are some people that I've seen here with us every week, um, and I really appreciate you sticking with us. If you missed some of today's discussion or you want to listen again or listen to any of our previous discussion, we've uploaded all of the audio on our podcast, COVID Chat. You can listen on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, wherever you get your podcast, just search for COVID Chat um, and you'll be able to listen to this episode and our previous episodes. Also, don't forget to follow us at our social media pages, which Daniel is going to drop in the chat. Thank you again. This has really been an amazing initiative and we're going to try our best to not leave it here, but to actually champion the solutions from all of these conversations going forward.